Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be A-OK. Hey everyone, new episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. Little known fact about my guest today. The role that made him a household name was originally meant to go to a British person. But after many, many auditions, he proved to the producers and all the creatives and really everyone on the planet that no one else could play the part on White Collar. Welcome Matt Bomer, Golden Globe Award winner to the podcast. Hey, My guest today is the Golden Globe award-winning actor, Matt Bomer. Matt recently made his Broadway debut in The Boys in the Band. For six seasons, he starred as Neil Caffrey in the critically acclaimed TV show, White Collar. Along with Lady Gaga and Kathy Bates, he starred in the FX series American Horror Story, Hotel. He co-starred with Lily Collins in The Last Tycoon and made his directorial debut with The Assassination of Gianni Versace, American Crime Story. Some, and I mean some, of his feature film credits include The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, my favorite, Flight Plan, The Magic Mike Films, The Nice Guys, and The Magnificent Seven. His portrayal of Felix Turner, a writer for the New York Times in the screen version of The Normal Heart, won Matt the Golden Globe and Critics' Choice Award and an Emmy nomination. He is an activist for many beautiful causes, but particularly organizations that support the LGBTQ community. He hails from Texas, and I'm so thrilled to welcome Matt to my podcast. I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. I am so thrilled. You said before we were on air that you are a podcast lover and listener, but this is, in fact, your first time. That's right. This is my virgin flight, as yeah. we spoke about. Yeah. Uh, I love the medium of podcasting. I, I, I enjoy talk shows, but so much of what they've become are, especially in the late night forums are about sound bites and, and, and little bits that can get media play the next day. Right. And I really enjoy long form conversations with people. And um, it's a big part of my driving experience when I'm in Los Angeles. I listen to a lot of podcasts and even when I'm riding the subway here and walking around the city. Well, I want to start by saying that I am someone who has had the unbelievable honor 
and I'm not saying that uh, with any irony, to see you make your Broadway debut in The Boys in the Band. I am one of the few people I know in the theater community who thought they knew what it was, but really at the end of the day, I was like, I haven't seen it. I hadn't seen the movie, and I hadn't read the play, and I went in having no idea what to expect, except Joe Mantello is an old, dear friend of mine, Mm -hmm. and I knew as soon as I sat down and looked at that set... Even before the play began, I was like, oof, I'm going to be so happy. Yeah, David Zinn did an incredible job with this sort of Halston, Ruby, jewel box uh, kind of gay purgatory. (laughs) You know blood will be shed in this space. And it is. You can't look in any direction without seeing your reflection. It's, It's just a wonderful set to get to be on and play on as well. Yeah. And you come on really quickly uh, into the show. And it's sort of extraordinary to me that this is your debut because you've done so much theater for so long. And I think of you as this actor who goes in this really fluid way from one medium to another. And and so it was kind of astonishing to me when I saw that it was you did not seem like you were making your debut. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. It's a very confident performance. it's great. I mean, I think this is probably God, the fifth or sixth Broadway show that I've been cast in. It's just because of scheduling or because I needed a, a, to take a money job for right. better or for worse. I've had to depart um, uh, things I was attached to. In the you past. deferred. I deferred. You deferred yeah, your enrollment to, yeah, in the there College were times of Broadway. I wasn't available or I had to choose commerce over art, unfortunately, because Simon and I have three kids. Yeah, <laughs> so, and those kids. But, yeah, I, I'll tell you, to have Joe Mantello um, shepherd you in your Broadway debut is really worth the wait. Every actor knows that about him. Um, well, Joe was an actor, so there's yeah, something about someone who I've really I've worked with knows. him as an actor, and I, we did a one-night-only thing on Broadway, the Dustin Lance Black 8, oh. the reading of his play, which is the transcripts from the Proposition 8 trials. Uh, oh, wow. How interesting. Yeah. As an actor working with him and as a director, but this was the first time we really got to roll our sleeves up, and he really is just a master. Um and he, he's like Michelangelo, you know, he, he just sees, he'll be really happy to marble, hear this. Yeah. And he chips away slowly and he's willing to not know all the answers and to let the sculpture reveal itself to him as he's proceeding and all the great things that you get to do when you work in this medium. Is it true that every actor in the play is gay? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. That's also kind of a probably a, a first for a Broadway I'll show, isn't you, it? I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Normally, I'm the only gay person on any set that I'm on. Uh-huh. Maybe there are one or two others. Typically, they're behind the scenes. So to have eight other gay men, I can't tell you. I love platonically. I love every single one of these guys so much. They're so gifted uh, in terms of what they bring to the stage, but they're also just wonderful people and we're so well cast, which makes such a big difference. Some of them I've known for over 20 years. Some of them are completely new. So you me. and Andrew Rannells have known each other? Or uh, Quinto, Zach or Quinto and I have, have known each other since I was 18. We went to Carnegie Mellon together. You are kidding me. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So I, I actually only ever thought I was going to do theater. It, it's only really by strange circumstances that I my this whole career other. has gone other directions. Yeah. Um, so I went to Carnegie Mellon with Zach. Uh, Andrew, I've known from the theater community since 2003. 
uh, Michael Benjamin Washington I've known since 2001, maybe. And I'd worked with Brian Hutchison a couple times. He, we were at Williamstown at the same time, um, but we didn't really interact there. And then um, we did a few days on this film called Winter's Tale together. So I, I knew him, but not well. Is that the Russell Crowe yeah. movie? Yeah. I yeah. read that book, actually. Beautiful book. The thing that's really crazy for me right now, and I'm trying to kind of keep it in check, is that Simon Halls, who is Matt's husband, is one of my oldest friends. And when I think about my life starting out as an actress and and my early years as a single person running around and Mm. building the community that remains my community and kind of chosen family to this day, when I lived in L.A., Simon was in this group of people and in New York who he was like a brother to me. So I have watched your boys grow up and I've, (laughs) I've, you know, Bruce Bozzi and all these people who I love so much who have also been in my life. But it's kind of crazy to me that we have not spent time with each other. It is wild. And I've even worked with Naked Angels in the past. So I'm I'm surprised. We just missed each other. So I feel like this kind of false intimacy because I'm so in love with your husband. (laughs) Run with it, Elena. Run with it. I'm just going to act like I know you better. Better than I do. <laughs> do it. Um, so I do want to go back, though. You grew up in Texas mm-hmm. in a small town. Correct. Called yes. Spring? Spring. Yeah, it's about 45 minutes northwest of Houston. It was a small town, and now it's more uh, a suburb. I um, just was in Houston for the first time. I oh, was wow. honored uh, to be asked to host a gala for Theater Under the Stars. Oh, wow. And it was my first time there for whatever reason, and I had the What time most, of year was it? It was one month ago, so when this not airs... Too hot and, <laughs> not too hot and humid yet. It, this is an evergreen show. It's any time my listener wants it to <laughs> okay, be Okay, I love it. I went to the Rothko Chapel. Have you ever been to the Rothko Chapel in Houston? Oh, I think so, but I think it was maybe 15 years okay. ago, maybe more. So Mark Rothko, the magnificent painter, was commissioned, I guess, in the middle of Houston, um to build this non-denominational chapel. And you walk into this room in the middle of, I can't remember the name of the university that's in the middle of Houston. We'll get to you in a minute. But I But like Rothko's paintings are so magnificent. And in this chapel, all of the canvases are black. And you kind of walk in the way, you know how you walk into like MoMA and you're like, I could kind of have done that. I feel. Like, I mean, I know I didn't think of it, but I have a paintbrush and a bunch of paints, and I can make a Pollock. Anyway, all of this is to say that I walked into this chapel of all black canvases, and first I was like, I don't, I don't get it. And I was only the, the person. I was the only one in there, and I sat down and. Uh, I meditated successfully for the first time in my life because I've been trying to do that. Do you meditate? I do meditate. So, how did that come into your life? I, when I first came to the city and got into yoga, or maybe it was before I got into yoga, I I had read a book by Pramahansa Yogananda. Uh, He's really, he really was one of the first to bring meditation to the West. In the 20s, I think he came over from India, maybe 30s. Maybe it was a little later. I can't, I don't know the exact dates, but uh, a fascinating book. And it really opened my eyes to so many things. And I started to have all these numinous experiences and uh, I got into meditation that way and then into yoga a little bit more deeply that way. And then um, through that, I came to uh, transcendental meditation. 
um, which is a much more um, disciplined, uh, not, not, not more, not, that's not correct, not more disciplined, but it's a little bit more structured, just 20 right. minutes twice a day if you can. I don't always successfully achieve that. But uh, it was something that I really took to and, and really when I'm doing it with consistency has, has profoundly positive implications on my life. That's amazing. Well, I think I successfully meditated for three minutes. Good but for, you. for me, for me, that was like a huge thing. Oh, it yeah. has set me on a journey in recent months of meditation. And I'm sorry I told that whole story, but it all began. Well, I'm going to go de- down to the Rothko Chapel next time I'm Matt, home visiting my family. It's going there to blow your mind. There's a fantastic art scene and a fantastic theater scene in downtown Houston. Um, Which is where you began. Yeah. I, I started doing forensics in middle school and then I kind of backed out of it a little bit in high school because I wanted to have a little bit more of a complete high school experience. I knew I'd be going to conservatory, so I didn't want to only do drama in high school. And then uh, I guess my junior year, I started working with this wonderful actress, Annalie Jeffries, who was in the repertory company at the Alley. And she helped me get my first job in the theater, which was uh, A Streetcar Named Desire, directed by Michael Wilson there. That was your first was, professional job? That was my first professional wow. job, yeah. And who did you play in that production? I played, they had a program where a lot of the University of Houston students were cast, in the grad program, were cast in the um, shows. So I played the understudy for the young collector. But... Michael, being the brilliant director he is, had this entire uh, New Orleans panorama of people who would be doing the entre acts and entre scene. They would come on and do little scenes from um, Tennessee's uh, short plays. Um, Like street performers. Yeah. So I was a sailor. I was a denizen of New Orleans and all these other things in between the scenes. And and kind of like a we were kind of a a Greek chorus as well. But that says so much right away about him as a director. Yeah. Like that kind of generosity so that everyone feels like everyone's important. Yeah. And it really went a long way in setting up the world of New Orleans at that time. Were there cast recordings playing in your house when you were growing up? Were there any influences outside of school or the alley theater folk who no, brought theater? So how did really. you, in this tiny town yeah. of Spring, Texas, find theater? Well, I had a great teacher. You were allowed to take an elective. You know, it's a testament to the public school system there yeah. that you were allowed to take an elective when you were in sixth grade. And I chose theater arts. At the time, I wanted to be a marine biologist. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> theater arts. Shark play. behavior. Um, go figure. But I, so I, I chose that as my elective. And I had this wonderful teacher named Marla Crow who brought us all. It was a great introduction to acting because it was all improvisation based. It wasn't like Viola Spolin necessarily. It was a little lighter than that, maybe yeah. more groundlings than that. But it was so freeing and so wonderful. Do you remember a... it? Like as you sit here, do you remember being in that class? Yeah. Do you remember anything yeah, that was like... in one of those awful tea buildings, uh-huh. those little aluminum shacks that are an addendum to the campus. Right. Where we put the theater people. Yeah. And detention was right next door, I think. <laughs> Perfect. You could go right from improv <laughs> exactly. to detention. So that was like... It was so freeing. I'd always had a really wild imagination as a kid. I was an and outdoor kid. how did it kid. manifest itself? I just played outdoors and I would create characters for myself and I would... Um, we When I was in St. Louis, I, I grew up half my childhood in St. Louis until I was nine. Why did you guys move at nine? My dad got a work transfer 
Um, what did your dad do? My dad started out as a football player. A professional football player. Yeah. And then he became a coach. And then he became, uh, he worked, he had a business degree. And so he started working in the shipping industry. And, and for the first half of my childhood was more or less a traveling salesman. He traveled a great deal. It was very Arthur Miller-esque mm-hmm. in our home. Um, but we... With a better ending. Yeah. But we lived in a neighborhood called Webster Groves, which at the time I, had been written up in Time Magazine as one of the best places to raise kids. There was there were no fences. I would just run around with my best friend and our dogs. Uh, her name was Amy. Amy, if you're out there, hi. And we would run around with our dogs, go down to the creek, play in the creek. You know, it was very Mark Twain-esque, but just a perfect venue for anyone with an active imagination. And did you have siblings? I do, yeah. I have an older brother and a younger sister. Yeah. And were they around in the kind of magical playland that you were in? that in? time, yeah, I was I was attached at the hip to my older brother. I What's the age difference? Three years. Okay, yeah, you're close. I wanted to do everything he did. Mm-hmm. When he was a skater, I was a skater. If he was into a toy, I was into a toy. If he wanted to listen to his music, I wanted to listen. I just idolized him. And... Um, yeah, so I was very attached to and my, my sister as well. I mean, I, I, I still talk to my sister almost daily now, if, if nothing else than by text or something. Um, so my son is 11. I'm trying to think of nine, if that was a moment to move that was... I was going into fifth grade, so right. it was very hard. Yeah, like you yeah. Almost, like you were separated. You yeah. were about to graduate with, with everyone. I've been the same people since kindergarten, and I had to go to an entirely new school where I was only there for one year in an entirely new environment, an entirely new culture, really, in suburban Texas. So... Um, and then we were only there for that one year and then we were shipped off to another school for middle school. So it was really thrown in the water, thrown in the deep end there a little bit socially. But, uh, I, I, you know, I wasn't depressed or anything. I, I kind of threw myself in wholeheartedly. So I started doing forensics where we would do humorous interpretation or duet interpretation or a prose reading or a poetry reading. And I started doing really well at those. And my parents had no clue what was going on. I would just come home on Saturday nights with these trophies and things. And they'd be like, oh, well, this is What's weird happening? or whatever. But uh, it, in fairness to them, they let me do it. They mm-hmm. encouraged, you know, um, they didn't stand in my way. And um, so that's that was sort of my foray into it and, and my first understanding of, oh, how do I channel all this that I've had inside me in my own little world or just that I've shared with close friends? How do I how do I bring that out? Well, if anyone has watched Glee or seen Magic <laughs> Mike, you're an amazing singer. So at some oh. point, you know, I have a lot of guests, Kristen Chenoweth. Amazing, but... You have a beautiful voice. <laughs> and a lot of people found it in church. Like that was where they yeah. knew, mm-hmm. oh, like I can sing and people were giving them attention for it. Was that something that you understood that you could do at a young age or did that kind of confidence no. come later? So you asked about Broadway recordings. Yeah. I had, um, I would sing in the shower or in the bathtub for like 30, 45 minutes when I was in high school. 
and I basically taught myself to sing. There were other kids in the drama club who would let me borrow their cast recordings okay. or whatever it was. So I, I, I'm still not very versed in music theater. I'm not, I need to get my gay card stamped a little bit better in that medium. Well, but. on your way out, you'll see there's a little gay card stamp station. Oh, all right. This, you are on your okay. way. This is the gayest podcast. <laughs> yes. You could look at the list. Oh, I can't wait. Your whole cast has been on this. Oh, good. Um, wait, but yeah, so what I, were you singing? Like pop um, um, I, well, I, I, I always loved time? Michael Michael Jackson mm-hmm. and pop music and rock and roll music. Rock and roll I just sounded eighty two <laughs> years old. Uh, rock music or what is it that the kids are listening to? What are they, the rock they, and roll? They call it? Um, the devil's music. The devil's yeah, really. And I and I'd also been going to church, you know, and and singing hymns since I came out of the womb, mm-hmm. uh, multiple times per week. Was your family religiously inclined when Extremely. you were growing up? Really? Yeah. So what kind of were you? We began Baptist. Baptist. And then we did a little flirtation with Presbyterian, which I really enjoyed, actually. Easier. That's so easy. (laughs) So much less dogmatic. (laughs) There was a structure to the service. I knew what the beginning, middle and end was. I could even be an altar boy and light a candle, take up about half an hour of that service. Then you're done. Then it's lunch. Yep. So and then we ended up settling into non-denominational that's probably what we were for the longest period of my childhood. Okay. So that... that's basically when you're Protestant, but there's not as much of a structure to the sermon, and you have one preacher and elder board and deacons, and the preacher is basically interpreting the Bible, his interpretation of the Bible that he learned from seminary or whatever it may be. So you're sitting there listening oh, yeah. to his ideas. His ideas, mm-hmm. yeah, of what the Bible means, which can be very... Not your idea. Not your idea, yeah. So did you believe that if you sinned, you wouldn't go to heaven? For a period, yeah. Yeah, for a long period, Do I you was wracked with guilt. <laughs> because it's true. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I knew I came on this podcast for a reason. Uh, no, I uh, I don't believe that anymore. But I, you know, there was definitely a really lengthy period when I went to conservatory at Carnegie Mellon. I was still reading my Bible every night. Oh my uh, God. Before I went to bed. So uh, with no like righteousness or judgment Just towards what you did. anything else that was going on. I did was still doing roommate? plays by Larry Kramer sure. and, you know, uh, Angels in America and things like that. I did have a roommate, yeah, who was, uh, uh, I think, an engineering major from Boston. And he was like, Matt, we got to go. Well, you know, he was like bringing girls into our room and hooking up with them at night. So I was like, like, I can read my Bible if you can hook up with girls in our room. I'm not telling on you. Well, by the time you got to Carnegie Mellon, had you auditioned at that point for a bunch of different? I did. Yeah, I I think I got into into, I got into a a, a ton of school, not not just theater schools, because I'd also was marine biology still a dream. No, it was more journalism. So I'd gotten into some good journalism schools as well. I think it's Syracuse and some other places that were kind of back up if I didn't get into a conservatory. And then I ended up doing, I'd gotten a scholarship from a national foundation for advancement in the arts that kind of helped me get my foot in the door. And I was able to get into a lot of different conservatories, but I knew that I, I was not a very self-possessed person at the time, but I knew that I would not be able to go. I'd visited New York a couple times, and I knew that I was not ready to make the leap from Spring, Texas to Manhattan right away. Yeah. So when you got to Carnegie Mellon, did you get to do a lot of good roles there? 
Yeah. I mean, that's the great thing about conservatory is that you're getting to work on all these wonderful roles um, that you may never get to play again. Right. You know, and in and, and one day I'd be doing a monologue from Hamlet, a pinter scene, um, a song, uh, um, you know, and then doing neutral mask work. And, you know, oh, 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 it just. I'm sorry it's so... audio because I wish people could have seen you when you just said neutral mask. <laughs> and then my body changed. How neutral your mask was. <laughs> when you got to college, are you dating men at this point? No. Because you're reading your Bible. Are you dating anyone? I dated women through, I want to say, well, really my junior year of college. Uh, but I would say my freshman year of college was the last you know, lengthy relationship with a woman I was in. Were you aware early on that you had feelings for men and you were a religious person and you're mm. denying them? Or did it just not occur to you because you didn't even know what it was? I was aware. Uh, it, it's something that becomes bifurcated because you're sitting in a pew on Sundays hearing that this, who you are, is a is an abomination, is a one-way ticket to hell, whatever mm-hmm. the condemnation of the week was. Mm-hmm. And not that it was always what the service but was when about, it but up. when it came up. So I think it kind of creates a split where that part of you has to go into a, a deeply hidden, safe place. And the part of you on the surface has to figure out how to survive and, and continue forward and, and to get to a place where you can hopefully re-engage with the part that split away. So what was the sort of inciting event where like the right part of you and the left part of you came together and allowed you to put in a sentence, this is what I feel and this is who I want to love. Like, was there a they person in your all... life or is it, is it? Well, really I have what I look back on and realize now were true, sweet, you know, adolescent crushes mm-hmm. that obviously were completely non-reciprocal right. and unrequited, um, which I'm glad I had because I think it's fed me a lot as an actor to not know always what it is to get what you want. Tell me what you mean by that in terms of how you approach a character. We're right. about emotional accessibility. Okay. okay. Yeah, and to understand the full spectrum of human emotion, not just somebody. Because I think sometimes people think that I'm someone who's just always had a golden existence who's, you know, probably never had, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes people thin slice me. They might think, oh, this person's been lucky in love. And that mm-hmm. has certainly not been the case for me. Um, so, uh, it I'm, came well earned. Yeah, it came well earned, which made me appreciate it all the more, I think, when I met Simon, you know. Mm-hmm. So I was working at the Utah Shakespeare Festival. They have a great program for younger actors. It's kind of an internship program. We had this amazing, I guess she was really the wig master slash um, she also helped certain people design their hair and makeup and things okay. like that. And um, she was, I, she doesn't necessarily identify in any specific way. Um, I, and I don't want to speak on her behalf because it's been 20 years, yeah. you know. Um, but uh, she, her name was Kennedy, is Kennedy. She's actually coming to see me. I'm going to see her for the first time in like 20 years. She's coming to see the show in a couple weeks. Oh, but nice. She... Uh, had been born a boy 
in in Salt Lake City, Utah, and had been through some really traumatic experiences as a kid and was still living this incredible, authentic truth that was so staggeringly courageous. And I just thought, wow, if this person can do it, what am I... What am I turning a blind eye to? And so that's when I started to sort of look at myself. Hmm. Um, and then it was a you know a process from there. So when you finished school, you came to New York right away? I did, yeah. Well, not right away. I, I was lucky enough to get uh, the Sundance Theater Lab uh, right before I graduated. Um, I got to sit down with Michael Mayer and Steven Sater, and they cast me in the very first workshop of Spring Awakening. And I mean, it was a, a truly a workshop. It was, you know, Duncan Sheik, you know, like figuring out the chords oh on the God. guitar as on we you. were going, which That's is just incredible. The, the dreamiest first job. I wish every actor could start with that job yeah. because you're in this lab in this remote beautiful the safest place. place in the world to and just I try things. And I met so many incredible people. I got to meet Moises Kaufman and Craig Lucas and a lot of great artists who kept me, even when I wasn't employed when I first got to the city, who kept me involved in readings. But and, that is incredible. I mean, just think about that. It was a dream. Right? Like to start in that environment. I could not believe it. Like that's fantastic. Yeah. I would do it again in a heartbeat. Yeah. Were there people in school with you at Carnegie Mellon who also are now like people in your class or people you worked with that came to New York also? Did you have oh, yeah. a community kind of of people that were in your class that yeah. came to New York and were like your people? Yeah, I, I was roommates with uh, my best friend, Victor Kinaj, who's still my best friend. Um, we were roommates in, in college as well. As long We were roommates with Pablo Schreiber as well. Oh, I know Pablo. And he came to the city. Yeah. Cody DePablo came to the city. A bunch of our friends did. So yeah. you, had a, you had a crew. We had a little group, yeah. We were out in uh, Prospect Heights. Uh, from from Spring Awakening, I, I was cast... Well, I still had to go on an audition for all the producers and everything, but I, I ended up getting a job in Thoroughly Modern Millie. Um, uh, and then... Um, we were waiting a long time to get the right house for that because right. I don't, I'm sure all your listeners know this already. But It's all about real estate. It, it's about real estate and finding the right house for your show. So uh, the houses that were ready were just too big. Right. They needed a more intimate. Yeah. And not that the Marriott Marquis is intimate necessarily, but it was a more appropriate house size yeah. for that show. Um, and I, I got to hear Janine Tesori's music, who I think is just a genius. I think she's so brilliant. And uh uh, we were waiting on that, and then 9-11 so happened. I was cast, yeah, and then 9-11 happened. And at the time, I was working uh, as a bellman at the Hudson Hotel on 58th Street sure. during the day and waiting tables uh, in the East Village at night. I was working two jobs to stay in the city, and then, you know, I don't know. Were you here for 9-11? Yeah. Yeah, so... I, as you know, people just stopped coming to the city. So not only was the show delayed uh, and, and uncertain... Um, I was laid off. Everyone in the uh, hotel industry was laid off in order of seniority. And sure. obviously I'd you were just gotten in. to the right. city. So I, I lost that gig and the waiting tables gig. I didn't necessarily have enough nights per week to pay my bills. So I was really freaking out. I know at some point, because when I told someone I was interviewing you, they were like, I loved him on Guiding Light. So at yeah. some point you were on Guiding Light. Yeah, well, that's when Guiding Light really entered the picture. I, I had... Um, 
met with this wonderful casting director, Rob Decina. I didn't really want to be, I'd done a, a two days on All My Children, mm-hmm. which I found fascinating, yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't something that I had really dreamed about doing. So, so Rob had said to me, you know, he, he talked to me about being on a soap opera. It wasn't something I was really interested in. And my manager called me, uh, you know, when I was figuring out how to pay my rent. And he said, uh, they're casting for a role on Guiding Light. I don't think you should do this. I was like, listen, I, I got to do it. Even if I'm not right for the part, I want to get in there and audition. And I was fortunate enough to get a test. First, there was this producer's test where literally the producer was so old school that he sat across from me and smoked a cigar like Right three feet right in front of my face as I was reading the sides. I don't know if it was some kind of old school test. It was like very studio era. Hey, kid. Yeah. Yeah. Can you, can you handle a little smoke in your eye when you do the scene? Because it, it's it's rough and dirty on yeah. Guiding Light. Anyway, great guy. Um, cast you. Cast me. And I ended up playing Ben Reed for a little over a year. And it was the best decision I ever made because I was terrified to be on camera. I only knew theater. I only knew the comfort of that immediacy and that slipstream that you get with a live audience that you don't get in any other medium. And rehearsal. Yeah, and rehearsal. And I didn't know how to gauge whether anyone was with what I was doing or not. And so when I started out, I mean, I literally was trying not to shake. Mm. And by the end of my year there, I was, was so comfortable. Yeah, it was like, uh, you know, you're just on camera so much. Uh, it's like getting paid to go to grad school and you have to do every different kind of crazy emotion and crazy circumstance. And what was your character? Towards the arc? end, uh, um, my character's arc was I was a trust fund baby. Mm-hmm. I was related to a woman named Holly, who was, you know, kind of an icon of the show. I don't, I have to pardon me. I this don't will mean a lot to some people. Tree. Yes. But, um, <laughs> Ancestry.com. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, they, they gave you a book when you started the job. So you got a sense of the history of That's the show. Awesome. That is awesome. Who was who. I wish you still who had knew that. Who to give an extra special hide to in the hallway. You, you also know because they're wearing sweaters. So you're a trust fund guy. You're I was a trust fund baby. Who, a matriarch of the show. Correct. Uh, I think my parents had died or something. I don't know. Um, and I bet my friends, my fraternity brothers, that I could be the first to deflower the town virgin. Good for you. Who was the main matriarch, Kim Zimmer's daughter, Mara. Uh, of course, then I fell in love with her. She found out about it. She found out me. that it was a bet. Yeah, dumped me. But even though I'd really fallen in love at that right, point, dumped late. me. I met a new girl, Marina, um, played by my friend, Aubrey Dollar, who I'd waited tables with. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so surreal. And, uh, and we fell in love with her. Uh, I lost my trust fund and couldn't tell her about it. So I did what, you know, every sensible person does. I became a male prostitute. All of my clientele were cougars. I was, you know, like 22 years old, oh, like in a sock, a, a, a modesty sock with like women in their 40s, you know, just on a daily mm-hmm. basis. It was a very strange but amazing experience. And uh, and then I went crazy. She broke up with me when she found out that I was a prostitute. I don't know why. And I am so mad at her. I'm still I'm still upset about it. I, I went crazy. I killed like five people. <laughs> and then I, I kidnapped her to a cabin in the woods <laughs> and committed suicide in front of her after confessing that I'd been molested by my teacher 
my female teacher growing up in middle school. It was it was during that time that that woman had that illicit affair with her student. Yeah, so it was very she's on the cover of People. Very top. They're married yeah. now, and I what? <laughs> oh my are, god! Yes, wow, yes. that worked well, out. For it didn't them. work out that way for Ben. I'm sorry, Ben. He was scarred. He went crazy and killed people. So I, I and I killed myself by injecting myself. I think it was the first suicide in the history of daytime by injecting myself with a needle full of. Uh, insulin. And then I hung on one more day in the hospital to confess all my sins before I expired. But by the end of, I say all this to say, by the end of it, I was so comfortable on the show that they would literally say things to me like, hey, um, we're not going to have time to block this scene for cameras. It's pretty straightforward. If you could come down to this general area and make sure you hit camera two on that monologue. And if you're crying out of your downstage eye, that would be amazing. In five, four, Three midpoint to me. And you're like, got it. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. I'm not that I I think I was only crying because I was so terrified that I had to actually do that. But also exhausted. That's a yeah. lot to have happened in one year. But what incredible training. Yeah, it was. Julianne Moore was here and she was actually played twins. Yeah. On soap and I she remember. was like and, and and Judith Light was like, mm-hmm. you know, I thought I didn't want to do it. And I ended up doing this part. The female prostitute version. Yes, I've seen. I feel scenes. like side by side, we could kind of create some. Content. We all, as a cast, the boys in the band with Joe Mandela, watched her trial scene together. Karen. Karen. Karen yeah. Walchuk, or whatever her name is. There, I had. I sort of went back. You know, I do deep dives into yeah. my guests, and Judith's an old friend of mine, and I was like, yeah. I don't think I've ever seen her do that and she Karen was Womack was amazing the no, but literally you're like that that could literally be on HBO oh right now oh my god it's extraordinary yeah and and when you when when you know the medium and you know the fact that she had one rehearsal that morning and maybe the pages handed like maybe yeah. a camera rehearsal yeah I mean, in fairness, we usually did get our scripts a week ahead of time okay so I've in had fairness. much worse than that in right. other mediums but um and, and then got one take. In all likelihood, she got one take. It's such a lesson because there are all these preconceived ideas of what we will and won't do. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that happens in like, you know, drama programs. Mm-hmm. Like we mm-hmm. were like, no, we're only going to do this and that. And then reality happens. I remember doing a soap and being like, I didn't want anyone to know and being embarrassed and not mm-hmm. telling people. And in the end, I think the truth is just do good work wherever you are. Yeah. And there are always people to learn from and skill sets that, listen, you wore a sock in Guiding Light and you wore a sock again working for Steven Soderbergh. Mm-hmm. So you knew how to wear a sock. Yeah. You learned that early on. I knew on. how to make choices very quickly. Yeah. Uh, the first three seasons of White Collar, we would get our lines in final form the morning of. And I would have lengthy monologues about art history or right. a particular sculptor. Mark Rothko, for example. Exactly. exactly. With Willie Garson. I, I would have it that morning yep. and then have to I'd get my two takes and that was it. So Were you I don't think I would have been able to do that had I not. To learn lines, that, that muscle memory of And to make the choices and... knowing you only have a couple takes, you know. Right. Well, when you finally got on a show... Which is kind of an extraordinary thing. I will say this, uh, just for any actors who are listening, uh, what you just said is the same advice that Jodie Foster gave me. 
Which was? When we worked on flight plan, she said, take every job. When you're starting out, just take every job that comes your way and do the best work you possibly can. And work will beget work, will beget work. I just want to make sure everyone heard what Matt just said. What he said was, what you said, Alana, is the same thing Jody Foster <laughs> said. And in case maybe you, like, took a sip of coffee and didn't hear for a second, I think that's an important You decision. are simpatico with Miss Foster on that. Oh, my God. She's a great hero of mine. And you did. And that's and you've had a very happy career. I've been very fortunate. Yeah. I mean, I think I think I've come to. Do you know know who Milton Katselis was? Mm -hmm. He was a wonderful acting teacher. And I so wish that I'd gotten time with him at Beverly Hills Playhouse. But he did come to Carnegie Mellon when I was there. And he always said that acting is made up uh, first and foremost of your talent, of your acting. But the other two parts of it, of the sort of triumvirate, as it were, are are attitude and administration. Uh And it really is a little bit of all three that enables you to keep moving forward in the business. I know some people who, whose strongest suit might not be their talent. It may be their attitude or Uh what they bring to a set and that gets And that people like to be around them. Yeah, yeah. But that's a huge thing. Huge. But I feel like that's you. Like, I mean, in, in this short time that I've been with you, you are a very positive person. I try to be, yeah. Is that natural to you or did you have to figure out how to be that? Well, I've always been very enthusiastic, um, particularly about things I enjoy. And, and I think I struggled enough to really be able to appreciate work as an actor and to come at it. You know, there are some jobs that's a lot easier to be enthusiastic about, but to come at it from a place of positivity. So was there a time where you thought... Gratitude. <laughs> I'm going to have to do something else. I'm not getting enough work. Yeah. And it wasn't that I wasn't getting enough work. I wanted work that connected with people or impacted them in some way. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't really doing theater at the time. And so I wasn't having that kind of feedback. And I loved Williamstown, but that's not really enough of a hit to give me the high that I needed. Right. Um, Although pretty close. Pretty close. Yeah. It's great. But then yeah. it's done. Yeah. And, it's and then over. there's there's September and, through yeah, July again. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I love Williamstown. I loved it. Um, but, you know, you only perform for a couple weeks, I mm-hmm. think, and then you're done. <clears throat> so I had been... It's testing for a lot of different. I'd done a show called Traveler. Uh, with was that Vi- your first w- series? No, it was oh. not my first series. It was my first lead in a series. Okay. And it was with uh, Logan Marshall Green, who I'm sure you know, yeah. and Viola Davis and Aaron Stanford. And great scripts, great director, great producers. Um, Dan Jinks and Bruce Cohen produced it, who had just done American Beauty. I mean, it was, you know, a, a really solid bet. And we just kind of got dumped mid season. And, you know, I think it's because Viola Davis had bigger and better things that the universe wanted her to do. Clearly. <laughs> it worked uh, out for Viola. It sure did. Yeah. I remember Worked her, out for all of you. Yeah, yeah, it did. It really did. But uh, so I'd done that and I'd gotten a recurring role on a show called Chuck on NBC, which mm-hmm. was very fun to do. But in the meantime, I was testing for all these pilots and it was kind of mind numbing. And I think I did four or five tests in a row where I realized that I was just kind of the guy they were bringing in to fill the room. We'll make him, we'll have the number one and three and then we'll put Matt in the middle. Yeah. And I think on the last test I did, the casting director, who I love and who'd cast me in a 
film before that, her phone went off in the middle of my test. And I don't know if you've ever been at one of those old school network tests, mm-hmm. but you're sitting in a room full of suits and it's kind of like theater. You're reading by yourself on a chair or standing in front of a room full of executives. And her phone went off in the middle of this emotional monologue that I was doing. And, in, you know, it's one of those situations where you had to make an executive decision. She didn't silence it. It just kept going. And I didn't know if I should stop and take right. control of the audition and say, can you turn your phone off, please? And can we start over? Um, or if I should just be someone who can roll with those kinds of things and, and be a professional who keeps going no matter what the distraction. And I opted for the latter, but I was really demoralized afterwards and, and kind of downhearted and just didn't really know what my path was going to be. So I actually had started applying to graduate schools and then a script from USA Network had come my way that they'd wanted me to do. And I didn't want to do that one, which ended up being a huge success, by the way but it wasn't the one for me. And then I read the pilot for White Collar and I thought, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And I know, I know this role is mine to lose. I know this. And so I you had, had to, to audition for it. Oh my gosh. I had to test twice for it. Okay. Because they wanted someone in their 40s and British. And I had to change everyone's mind. And I was just really lucky that the creator saw this character in me. Um, And you were able to go in each time to the audition knowing that there were a lot of people in that room who were rooting for another choice and you still did your work. Yeah. And and it helped that I knew I had the creator on my side. Mm -hmm. So we on the side, he would call me and say, listen, I love what you're doing. They want this, this and this. So let's figure out how to ramp up the humor here, how to make it more somber here, whatever it was. Yeah. And so he kind of spoon-fed direction to you. We were doing our own thing on the side. So awesome. Really. That's so awesome. And, uh, he was right. Yeah. And it worked out. And it was it was a very lengthy process from when I got the job to when the pilot actually filmed. And then another huge lengthy process. I think that the... the they, I think they say this about a lot of pilots, but I know that it it tested, you know, just extraordinarily well for them. And, right. But it was still another long process before it we got to start shooting the series. Um, so it was, you know, I think over a year in total by the time. Until you were really off. And really doing it. Yeah. When you got the job, mm-hmm. was it just a pilot it was at just first? A pilot, yeah. And were you able to let go of the knowledge that you were not everybody's first choice or were you worried about getting fired the whole time you did the pilot? I I gave zero fucks. I'd been through extreme highs, extreme lows, Uh just wanted to do the work. I didn't care if anybody liked it. Right. I didn't care if anybody, I knew it came from somewhere in me that resonated with me and this character that I knew and I had worked my ass off on and i did not care if it was a hit. I didn't care if it failed. I just wanted to do my best work. And you did. Yeah. And you could probably pickpocket me right now. There was a time when I could, for sure. I don't know. I'm a little rusty. Do you feel? Well, right right now you're in the boys in the band. Yeah. It's a very well, no one's thing. picking pockets in that one. Because you have a play tonight and I want you to have time to prepare. Yeah. What do you do? to prepare for a role in the theater or specifically for this play that you're doing? I don't come at half hour, at least not yet. Maybe there'll be a time when I feel comfortable doing that. I get there about an hour, hour and a half early. I relax. 
Sometimes I meditate. I always do my Alexander. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to sit up straight. Yeah. Yeah. You were noticing that. You're like, Alana. I did not notice that. No. You know, I, I, it's interesting, I, you know, having not done theater in a while, the, I think the hardest thing for me, particularly when you're on a set that's multi-leveled and everything is covered in carpeting. Which your was really projecting to the back of the house yeah. and, and coming in on the top of every line and finishing every thought strong. You know, that's been, I'm only just now, we've been doing it for four weeks now, just now to a place where I'm really feeling good in my voice again. Mm. So it's important for me, you know, the breath is so important and the bigger the emotion, the more important to be connected to that breath in some way. So uh, a lot of what I'm doing is just about getting my instrument warmed up and and So you're doing a proper relaxed. warm up yeah, and a lengthy warm up. And I use a lot of what I learned at Carnegie Mellon in terms of voice and speech. And right. does your cast do like a dance party before? Or are you guys all connected no. with each other in that no. way or it's more solitary before? Well, my, uh, my, my dressing room is next to Zach. Quintos, who I've known for 22 years. And so he's typically playing music or I'll check in with him. And on the other side of me is Michael Benjamin Washington, who I've known for 15 years so, or more. And so I'll, I'll check in with him. I'll, I'll see everybody at Fight Call. Uh-huh. Oh, you do uh, a Fight Call. do a Fight Call. So that's always nice to check in. We give lots of hugs then. It's a very affectionate, platonic, affectionate cast. It really is. And it's so nice. I just... I'm already in mourning for this experience to be over. Is it what you expected? Did you have a preconceived idea of what it would feel like? I was concerned, you know. uh, I had a lot of worries, you know, but they were all abated. Uh, There's nothing that compares to it. Um, It's the most enervating, joyous fun experience I've ever had in my career and there's nothing like every audience is different every performance is different I'm working with these incredible actors who especially now that we're open you can really play with when Jim and I do that first scene we can throw Jim Parsons who's so magnificent Um, I can throw things at him and he'll catch it and throw it back at me and when that when that's happening and you're in, like I said, that slipstream that that particular audience is in for, that's only going to be for that group of people for yeah. that one performance. When you're when everything's in sync that way, there is nothing better and feeling that freedom. And now I love when things go wrong on stage. You're not scared of it. No, I, okay. I live for it. I, I crave it. So what last goes night, wrong? Last night, I, um, you know, I have to make about 15 drinks over yeah. the course of the play. It's a miracle that I haven't broken something before last night. Um, but I was refilling Jim's club soda before his character starts drinking in the play. And it caught on the edge of the cutting board tipped over and broke a glass and it was loud and it had to be addressed. <laughs> and I said, party foul, which probably is just so not 1968, Okay, but it was so electric and the endorphins and the rush from it. And, and I was able to get all the glass cleaned while other people were speaking and get it off stage Amazing. organically and all these Amazing. things. It was just so fun. And I went to the stage door and there were two or three groups of people who were like, we love that line party foul. And I 
didn't have the heart to tell them that that wasn't yeah. <laughs> a part of the play. But not part, if you saw it 50 years ago, that yeah, did not happen. that didn't happen. But it was so, I just love moments like that. Yeah. I really do. And in the same performance, Jim's bracelet got caught in a thread in the back of his of his belt loop or something. So I had to untangle him from that. I just love moments like that that force you into the moment because I I can be such a cerebral person and such a student at times, which I love as a director, but right. not so much as an actor. So anything that makes me just completely from impulses and out of my head. Is when Was the stage joyful. manager backstage with like a little dust broom and a pan to give to you or, or did they? No, I brought, I don't ever get to leave the stage. So you just brought it like Once to I'm another on, part of the, the stage. Whole play, I brought it yeah. into the kitchen into an, when there's a, there's a portion where I go to the kitchen to refill the ice bucket and I, and I put it in a safe spot back there. A pile of glass. After the play, you're like, listen, there's a pile of glass in the kitchen. I Well, get there it. were other people in the kitchen when I was there. So I told them and they're the only people who use that part of the kitchen. And right. I tucked it away in a very high corner on a shelf. But you're right. Only that audience got to see that. Yeah. I know you told me that devastating story about the casting director whose phone went off, and I'm sure that casting director hopefully feels awful about that and it never or happened doesn't, again. doesn't even remember it. Well, they're going to hear it now. Um, <laughs> can you think of a particular audition story that maybe is really funny now? One of the ones that I remember the most was when they were, <laughs> they were doing Tarzan the musical. And I love animal work. I find it fascinating. I think it can be really useful in terms of changing your character's body language and rhythms in a very your game way. I'm game. Your game for totally exercises, game. animal exercises yeah. in particular. And a big portion of this audition was just going in with a group of guys. I, I, I'm sure it was some kind of cattle call and, uh, and, and really behaving like an ape. And trying to out ape each other, and then like you sing from Les Misérables, you know, it's like the most like, and, and then do a scene. It was just the most humbling early experience to throw yourself out there with, I guess, kind of everything you got. But you had gone to Carnegie Mellon. Mm -hmm. I'd already done animal work at Carnegie Mellon, work. Yeah. so you were prepared. Yeah. I mean, as prepared as one can be for that situation. But they were kind of calling out like what you needed to do as you do it, if I remember correctly. Like, now beat your chest. Now nope. roll over the, this. Now claim your territory. Now just walk. We're such good soldiers. We are. And We're we have to be. We pleasers. have to be. I'm such a sensitive person. And I think I, one of the craziest things is that being in this industry where you have to hold on to your sensitivity and protect it and nurture it, I've, it's actually thickened to my skin that I think a lot of other professions, if I'd chosen, would have. And now you're a dad, too. Now I'm a dad, too. So you got to hold down the fort. Yeah. Do they let you <laughs> sleep in in the morning? Uh, you're in a yeah, play? they're getting... It's just now... Well, they're in uh, finishing school in L.A. right now. Okay, this so is the longest here. I've ever been away from them, which is really, really hard. Yeah. Um, that's been the only hard part of this experience for me. And that's why I'm so grateful that there's such a great theater community when you're on a Broadway show because it's helped to occupy my right. lonely hours. Yeah, but it's excruciating I being did. away from them. It is. In the first weeks and still a little bit when I would wake up, I would just have all this energy of who am I supposed to make breakfast for right. and get ready for school. And Me. Just me. Yeah, I guess pancakes for one. <laughs> 
So uh, sure. that's been a period of adjustment. But they, they um, our oldest is come. Uh, we're not supposed to know what time of year it is. But, no, but okay. the Tonys are coming up, and so our oldest is 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 going to be my date to that. He's coming that's on really Saturday. Funny. And uh, then the twins come out in the following week, and then they all go to camp, and then they'll come back after that. Amazing. Well, Matt, I have to let I mean, you go. I mean, we could just go on. We could go oh, on, could. but I want you to be able to do your Alexander and, and anything you. else you need That's to do before the show. That's very considerate of you. And I just have to say, I thought you were absolutely extraordinary in this play. Thank um, you. I could talk to you about the normal heart for hours, mm. but all I want to say about it is, it stays wow. with me in such a deep way. The fact that you are Neil Caffrey mm. and Felix Turner in the same career, what an extraordinary thing. It is. What an extraordinary the, time you are having. And I did the first half of The Normal Heart while I was doing well, the last season of White Collar. You are not even speaking English right now. <laughs> I, know, I do great. not know what language you are speaking. I would go from one speaking. set to the other. Which is that is surreal. a very schizophrenic reality. Yeah. Um, but maybe one allow you know, maybe that's, well, that seems to me exactly what you needed to do. Yeah. Because you were fantastic in both. Thank you. And earned every award and every nomination and every accolade. That is something, that's your legacy among many things. But oh. for the community that lived during that time, yeah. for present day generation of people who are learning yeah. about that history. Mark Ruffalo was brilliant in yeah. it. Everyone, Everyone in that cast. Was, yeah. um, you made, you finished the hat on Thank that one you. is what I Thank want to you. say. I it was, was extraordinary. So honored to be a, bar, a part of that piece. It had been so um, impactful to me from the time I was an early teenager. You um, had access to that. Yeah, play. I think yeah. I really think Larry Kramer probably saved my life. Yeah. Uh, just being exposed to his words and his, his. Uh, and there you are, like talking to him. I imagine, and, and he came with me to the opening of Boys in the Band. We right. got to take a picture on the carpet together. There, it was one of the great joys of my experience of this piece. I adore him. Life is so crazy. Yeah. Right, like Matt Bomer, fourteen, spring, doing scenes Texas. from the Destiny of Me, and then, right is yeah. going to the opening of the Boys in the Band with Larry Kramer. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm done here. I know. Thank it's you for wild. being on this Thank podcast. Thank you so much. This is a joy. Well, come back soon. Recent studies have shown chronic stress is at its highest level ever. 35% of American children are so stressed out they have stress-related health issues. And our educators are reporting that they are also feeling stressed out between the testing that they have to administer to our kids and the underlying anxiety about safety in our schools. We need to help children and educators manage their daily stress. And this is where the mindful cards come in. Mindful cards are designed for classrooms. They are an easy-to-use tactile tool for teachers and children alike. They help teachers learn and instruct mindful activities, guided meditations, and breathing techniques to calm both the body and mind. Brogan Ganley has developed these cards with this in mind. Brogan has been teaching mindfulness and meditation to children and adults in schools, hospitals, and community centers. She has seen firsthand how mindfulness tool can change lives. Go to blossom-nyc.com to learn more about the mindful cards and see how we can help our children and our teachers deal with stress. 
If you want more information about my guests, go to the website littleknownfactspodcast.com. I also wanted to tell you that there is now a new addition to the website. It is a button that says Contributions. This podcast is a true labor of love, and I really, really want to keep doing it for a long time. So if you like listening as much as I love to do it, please feel free to contribute. It would mean the world to me. Also, on Twitter, you can find me at Alana Levine. Instagram is Little Known Facts Podcast. And on Facebook, Little Known Facts Podcast. You can also feel free to rate and review the show on the iTunes show page. This podcast is recorded at Hangar Studios in New York City. This episode was brought to you by Pro Media. Located in Times Square, Pro Media offers both production and post production services out of its beautiful studios in the heart of New York City. Pro Media Sound Vision. Find out more at promedia.nyc. Mother's Day is almost here. And you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.